Brett, what is your uh, drink of choice? I'm sure I think I explained. I'm not much of a drinker. I decided to pull Chococo out of the refrigerator. It is from uh, the Virgin Islands. So I'm doing a 25% alcohol chocolate and coconut liqueur for you guys. All right. Love it. So it's going to feel good tomorrow. These are the tales of baseball past as you've never heard them before. Our guests tell stories blending team seasons on and off diamond moments, memories of personal fandom catastrophe and elation, and yes, alcohol. We do the work, you tell the story. These are the basis stories. I'm Brett Valentini, long-suffering, long-time Chicago White Sox fan, and I'm here to tell you the story, the improbable story of the 2008 Chicago White Sox. The White Sox in 2008 were coming off of a terrible, terrible 2007 season. They won the World Series in 2005, a season and a title that most of us never thought would happen. They won 90 games in 2006, should have made the playoffs. You'd think 90 wins would get you the playoffs. It didn't get them the playoffs. They finished in third place in the AL Central, outside looking in. Uh, Meanwhile, the St. Louis Cardinals somehow won the World Series, just two games over 500. In 2007, the White Sox were terrible. Uh, In an attempt to put the 2007 season far, far in their rearview mirror, the White Sox made a number of moves for 2008. They decided to sign uh, Alice Ramirez out of Cuba, uh, which is a great splashy deal. Uh, But at the same time, they also traded one of their core starters, John Garland, to the Angels for Orlando Cabrera which displaced Alice Ramirez from his natural position at shortstop. So right off the bat, the White Sox were making interesting moves and acquisitions that were just going to add to their strengths. They decided to give a four-year contract to not to a closer, but to a setup reliever in Scott Linebrink. They had high hopes for Scott Linebrink. In 2008, we'll see where those high hopes played out. They made a trade for a little-known, temperamental outfielder from the Arizona Diamondbacks named Carlos Quinton. Nobody thought much of Carlos Quinton at the time he was acquired. There was good reason for that. There was no reason to have any thoughts about a guy named Carlos Quinton from the Arizona Diamondbacks. He ended up having an interesting 2008 season. Can't wait to talk about the Carlos Quinton season, particularly where he ended up. Juan Uribe was a World Series hero, including a fantastic catch, far better than the much better known Derek Jeter run into the stands catch. He did it in the ninth inning of a World Series to help clinch a sweep for the White Sox. Much, much, much better catch. Juan Uribe is a forever hero with the Chicago White Sox. He was never going anywhere. He came back for the 2008 season. Joe, you're nodding in agreement. Amen. (laughs) perhaps most controversially the white Sox made a bold bold trade and in the moment people were head over heels with excitement for it 
Ken Williams thought he made a big steal in acquiring Nick Swisher. Nick Swisher. His name is Nick Swisher. High OBP guy. Apparently good clubhouse leader. Jovial fella. Uh, his father had played professionally in Chicago. Big trade to acquire Nick Swisher. Again, they got a player who they then decided to play out of position. <laughs> As you'll find out in the 2008 season, he ended up being a center fielder. Nick Swisher is not a center fielder. Nick Swisher ended up being a leadoff hitter. Nick Swisher is not a leadoff hitter. <laughs> this was a very interesting 2008 season. Uh, the White Sox were trying to get better, and yet at the same time, sort of shooting their their some themselves in the foot as they were doing it. Had any quick thoughts on Nick Swisher? Yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> in in retrospect, it's such an unlikable team. A really mixed. I mean, you know, you want to like rally, and they were they're they're heroic. And I'm sure we'd look back if they had made a run to the World Series, we'd think more fondly about Nick Swisher or Javier Vasquez. But there's a lot of guys in the team that are like unlikable, like people hate, hate among the White Sox fan base. Yeah, Nick Swisher, they want to kill Nick Swisher. I hate Nick Swisher. He's one of my top five least favorite baseball players of all time. He earned it. I mean, (laughs) routinely, there are still comments on the site. We get, obviously, a ton of, you know, SB Nation. We get a ton of community stuff and a ton of comments. And fuck Nick Swisher is definitely still, like, just a (laughs) go-to comment. go-to comment. Sometimes with nothing having to do with Nick Swisher. Is that you? Is that you, Pat? Yeah, that's me. (laughs) Commenting on random SB Nation posts. Just fuck Nick Swisher. I might start doing that. That's hilarious. Set your alert to Nick Swisher. Yeah. yeah. Pat, who else is in that top five other than Jeff Kent, who is certified uh, at the top? Jeff Kent's number one. Uh, Ryan Braun. Um, oh, mascara. Nick, yeah, Nick Swisher. Who else is on there? I can't even remember who's on there now. I don't know. There's so much hate for Jeff Kent for no reason. So I. By me, that so it's so it's really a list of three, but it feels like five because it's yeah, it just overshadows everyone else. (laughs) Brett, do you hate any baseball players like Pat just irrationally? Oh, no, it's always rational, (laughs) it's always (laughs) that's fair too. Uh, Rational might be better, yeah. I mean, I. Yeah, there there are. Uh, I I don't keep the list handy. I guess. Um, Pat's got it in his wallet know. and pulls it out. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, I don't have the Pat list that's laminated. I mean, you know, usually at least, a, at least a, it's worth pointing out that to this day, in Southside Sox where I work, there are no Nick Swisher defenders out there. There really shouldn't be Nick Swisher defenders out there anywhere. Definitely not on the south side of Chicago. You're going to find out why, because the 2008 season was particularly delicious in the career, in the time span, in the life of Nick Swisher, including a very strange relationship he had to his bobblehead. (laughs) Oh, God. And because the White Sox uh, figured that signing one, taking one gamble on a non-closer for fairly big money in Scott Linebrink wasn't enough, they also decided to acquire via free agent means for not a small amount of money, Octavio Dotel, who was in the midst of playing for approximately 35 Major League Baseball teams. White Sox were probably somewhere in the middle there. Uh, so it was an interesting offseason. The White Sox, you cannot fault them for creating some activity and trying to get, uh, trying to improve the roster and make the team better after a terrible 2007 
and when expectations had been raised to World Series contention level. Uh, and really, right off the bat, things worked out pretty well for the White Sox in 2008. All right, well, let me pour myself some more Chococo. <laughs> How's that going down? It's all right. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's sweet. It was a, it was a I've never been more answer. confident. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's seductive. It's sweet for a 25% alcohol beverage, so... Uh, all right. Yeah, what, what's it's the Aussie Aussie Guian of beverages? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, continuing the theme of the White Sox shooting themselves in the foot, uh, which we have just covered with some of their off-season acquisitions, the White Sox were you wouldn't know it by looking at the final standings. They were a dominant team throughout 2008. They were in control of the Central Division for most of the year. They had an incredibly strong first half. They went into the All-Star break with more than 50 wins, which is pretty rare, and it's definitely rare for a Southside Chicago team. But the White Sox found a way toward the end of the season to make things very, very exciting. Uh, in the first half, we saw some real breakout performances. Uh, John Danks had come relatively recently in trade, and this was his breakout season. Uh, he became a pitching ace for the White Sox. Carlos Quentin, who was a little-known acquisition at the time, um, basically a minor league transaction with the Arizona Diamondbacks, through some uh, fortunate for him uh, injury circumstances, found himself in a starting lineup position, and he ran with it. He had a monster, monster season, never really had any uh, cold streak uh, throughout the year. Uh, unfortunately, he was his own worst enemy. He uh, had quite a temper. Uh, even with the White Sox, even as he was uh, perhaps a front runner for the most valuable player in the American League, uh, his temper uh, took him out of play. He decided to uh, get upset uh, in approaching the last month of the season, got upset when he hit a foul ball uh, that I guess he thought he should have masked for another home run and decided to hit his bat uh, in anger. And that ended up breaking his wrist and he did not play another game. He was lost to the White Sox for their final, very, very roller coaster final month of the season and for the playoffs as well. Shame. Yeah, that was his, that was his shot. Uh, Carlos Quentin uh, was a, an interesting study. Uh, he's a guy who came out of nowhere to be an MVP candidate. In fact, an MVP favorite in 2008, uh, him injuring himself um, was a harbinger of bad things for him to come. He was a guy who was constantly walking around the locker room with not just one huge ice pack, say, on his shoulder. He'd also have a big wrap on his knee. Uh, perhaps he'd have something at his midsection. Maybe both shoulders would be iced. Uh, he was a guy, he really was a, a, a walking injury, and it, and it it is a shame because the guy did have, he had MVP talent in 2008. Uh, he was a guy who was a limited player. He certainly could not uh, defend his position in right field terribly well, but he was a, a devastating uh, offensive force. And it was something the White Sox sorely lacked in 2008 and even in the, in the years to come. It's why he stuck around the South Side for a while, despite the fact he was a fairly unruly guy. He wasn't particularly friendly. He, he wasn't easy to talk to. He was a guy who would usually give you those one-word answers. And the White Sox in particular, but baseball players in general, usually are a little bit more 
they're less garrulous and they're a little bit more loquacious than that. Uh, even if they're just giving you uh, strings and strings of cliches, they still manage to talk your ear off. Paul Canerco would talk for hours and he actually would say nothing, but he would talk for hours and you'd listen and you'd try to write down the one thing that perhaps made sense or seemed like it would stand out as a good quote, but Carlos Quinton didn't mess around with anything like that. He just didn't want to talk to you at all. Uh, and perhaps for good reason, he was dripping. Uh, his shoulder was dripping, his ankle was dripping, his knee was dripping. So uh, I'll give you a pass a, a decade later, Carlos Quentin. But there were a lot of uh, mainstays, um, I guess you'd say holdovers from the World Series team and even that 2016 that won 90 games. Uh, Jim Tomei played a huge factor in the DH role for the White Sox. He really revitalized his career with the White Sox. He'd had back trouble and uh, his career in Philadelphia, which is where he went uh, after uh, leaving the Indians, had uh, really took a step back. He 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 had a pretty poor uh, poor record in, in Philadelphia, and the White Sox making a trade for him, in fact, in 2006 was somewhat controversial. But he had definitely revitalized his contract and got his his uh, march toward 600 home runs uh, back on track with the White Sox. Uh, Jermaine Dye was a another holdover and uh, his career was still very strong 2008 paul canerco uh, an incredible fan favorite the unofficial captain one of those rare guys who does sort of embrace the captain role but doesn't actually want it acknowledged sort of defeats the purpose of being a captain i would think but uh, he didn't really want any of that sort of attention even though he obviously was a go-to guy to speak to uh, as members of the media and certainly was a a big, big fan favorite, as indicated by the fact that his career is, by and large, fairly uh, uh, mediocre and pedestrian, but he has a ended up with a retired jersey uh, at Sox Park. Uh, Bobby Jenks continued to be a monster in the closer role. He had more than two wins above replacement as a closer, and I don't have to tell you, that's very rare. Um, that's yeah. not like because that's not like weight adjusted. That's not like height adjusted. That's just how good his performance was. Uh, this guy was a monster. And the fact that by that time he was the established closer. So Azeguin did not have to walk out to the mound and indicate the tall and wide boy the way he did in 2005, which was so colorful, which was really the way that Bobby Jenks was introduced to the world during that World Series. By that time, it was a no-brainer that he was the he was the closer, he was the go-to guy, he was the anchor of that bullpen. And even the awful performances from free agent acquisitions like Scott Leinbrink uh, couldn't really mess with the fact that Jenks still managed to hold down and anchor that bullpen. They also got some contrib contributions from a young uh, guy who'd eventually be the closer, somewhat of a failed closer for the White Sox. But Matt Thornton, a reclamation project from the Seattle Mariners, uh, the White Sox had done sort of a challenge trade with Seattle. They traded their failed first rounder, Joe Borchard, who is, I believe, still the only, to this day, the only White Sox player who has reached the concourse with a home run. So he had home run power, and, had a court, and he also had a quarterback's arm. But Joe Borchard was a failed prospect for the White Sox. Matt Thornton could not get the ball over the plate for Seattle. The White Sox would end up winning that challenge trade because Matt, because Matt Thornton came to the White Sox even beginning in this 2008 season uh, and became an incredibly valuable setup reliever. And he was also about six foot ten, and that that certainly doesn't hurt the intimidation factor. Once he could get the ball over the plate, he's perhaps pitching coach Don Cooper's best known, uh, one of his certainly top items on his resume 
or reclamation projects, taking a guy who's on the scrap scrap heap from another team and turning him into a pretty darn good pitcher. Canerco has a uh, statue, right? Doesn't he? He does. Center he field, does. right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's see. Yeah, from that team, Canerco, Mark Burley. I guess that's just the only two. But yeah, Canerco definitely has a. Uh... Yeah, uh, Paul Canerco, the guy who, in my very final days on the beat, uh, was rumored to be, well, he wasn't rumored to be. Ken Williams had asked him to be player manager <laughs> before they hired Robin Ventura. They said, Paul Canerco, you should be player manager. And Paul Canerco said, am I getting extra money? No, I'm not going to be player manager. But yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's how much I guess he was. He was he was loved, but then they hired in Ken Williams' words the four-star general of Robin Ventura. He would be a, he would have been a four-star general if he wasn't a baseball player, according to Ken Williams. Well, he wasn't a terribly good manager either. <laughs> but uh, wasn't he the one that got punched by uh, Nolan Ryan too? Oh yes, yes, yes. He went out. Uh, yeah, he had enough of Nolan Ryan. How much? And, how good of a general he would have been? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, gutsy. We'll give him, we'll give him guts, I suppose. Uh, yeah, he's got balls. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned you yeah. were talking about Danks and Carlos Quentin and and Carlos Bobby Quentin. Jenks, Quentin. Um, but and I guess my question is kind of. Like, when did you start to realize that this was going to be kind of like breakout campaigns for those guys? And this might kind of dovetail and get us back onto like the team as well. Like, at what point in the season was it like, oh, we, we've got something here? Um, and then maybe there was another point where it was like, oh, like we've really got something here, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as a as a White Sox fan, uh, even just three years after a World Series win and two years removed from ninety wins, which which ain't nothing, uh, and just by nature, uh, we're distrusting of the incredible fortune that the start of the season had brought to the White Sox. Uh, there was, I think, enjoyment, and then there was an expectation level of this is a World Series team. Two thousand seven was some strange aberration. Everything went wrong. We're going to just throw that season on the scrap heap and we're going to resume perennial playoffs. We're going to resume perennial World Series contention. That said, 2008 was such a different mix of players. It really would have taken some incredible poker playing by the front office to pull all that off. So when a guy like Carlos Quinton breaks out and starts looking like perhaps an MVP candidate through a couple months, when John Danks becomes an ace, uh, when he had just been in the minor leagues a, a year or two before. I think there was a bit of a reaction of, you know, you want to pinch yourself, you want to say, okay, the expectations there, but these aren't the guys we're necessarily expecting to deliver us. And so I think there was a little bit of a sit back, wait and see and see if this is real. Uh, as much as White Sox fans were expecting to contend, it was the AL Central after all, and even though Again, we had a trio of 90 win teams in 2006, as recently as 2006, and a World Series winner as recently as 2005. There was some mixed feeling, and I think some trepidation from fans wondering whether this was real or whether it was a mirage, because 2007 had gone so badly. Again, this was a new group of guys. The, the most ballyhooed acquisition was Nick Swisher, and he was terrible. 
Uh, he smiled even as he was terrible, which actually made White Sox fans angrier because <laughs> you're supposed to kick the dirt and spit and, and maybe cry and certainly general. cuss, <laughs> kick the dirt, maybe punch an umpire. And he wasn't doing any of those things. He looked like he was happy to be in 190. He looks like he looked like he was happy to be able to sign a lot of autographs before the game. Uh, and he particularly, his style did not mesh well with that of Ozzie Guillen. Ozzie Guillen has since said, and, and didn't make any bones even at the time of his dislike for Nick Swisher, and certainly uh, after the fact, as pointed out Nick Swisher, I believe, and I don't think this is unique among fans and even maybe among managers, uh, has pointed him out as perhaps his least favorite player ever. I believe he has actually said, I hate Nick Swisher. That's a pretty strong... Given that's a guy who you were batting the lead off and putting in center field, that's a pretty strong, strong feeling about a guy. So there was a lot of uncertainty from from the fan base. And as fans, you're you're certainly happy to be in first place. You're happy to be starting out well. You're happy to get 50-plus wins in the first half. But there's always that. And again, this might not be unique to White Sox fans, but it definitely is part of the White Sox fan base of what's lurking around the corner when is that cloud, that one single cloud, going to come and fly in front of the sun? And I think there was a little bit of waiting for that to happen. And unfortunately, it wasn't too long. The season would not end without us being able to have that sort of feeling of, uh-oh, uh, it's all come to roost now. There is the cloud. The sun is blotted out. We will never live to see another baseball season. One of the things White Sox fans like to tease their front office about is uh, Ken Williams in general. As most GMs do, they come under fire. And Ken Williams always manages to trade for guys he's wanted to sign or trade for or maybe even draft in the first place uh, for, his in, for their entire careers. And he gets them on their last legs. Ken Griffey Jr., you might not remember was a member of the Chicago White Sox in 2008. He's an example of Kenny always gets his man. That's sort of the t-shirt <laughs> slogan that uh, White Sox fans use is they'll always get his man. This is a guy, let's not forget, who traded for Roberto Alomar not once, but twice. And neither of those, neither of those trades were during a time when he was in the prime of his career. Ken Griffey Jr. did come to the White Sox ostensibly uh, to play center field. I think it was mostly just to vindicate uh, and prove Ken Williams proved to himself that he could trade for Ken Griffey Jr. It was a minor trade with the Cincinnati Reds, a chance for Ken Griffey perhaps to get a ch uh, one more opportunity to get into the postseason, uh, which is why I'm sure he had to approve and sign off on the deal. Uh, he did hit a few home runs with the White Sox. He had one extraordinary moment in his 2008 career, and that was in the blackout game and throwing a runner out at home plate and i'm sure we'll talk in more detail about the blackout game but uh ken griffey does have at least one true bonafide chicago white Sox highlight contrary to what you may believe or what your father told you let's talk about some of the white Sox opponents in 2008. Uh, detroit had the Detroit Tigers had foiled the White Sox in 2006, sort of broken their hearts uh, in keeping them out of the playoffs. The White Sox would get their revenge in several instances during the 2008 season, including crushing them right at the start, get, helping them to a 0-6 start, which pretty much killed their season. This was a team that had playoff aspirations. 
There was a Crosstown classic combination of series, as they often go, uh, no matter how bad one team is, they always play pretty equal. And not to diss on the Cubs, but let's take just a moment to dog our North side rivals. White Sox have traditionally destroyed the Cubs, going back to the City Series, the Crosstown Classic, even, I would argue, probably in spring training play. This notion that these two teams are equal, I understand the, the Cubs have recently had a successful run, which got them one gift World Series, thanks to <laughs> Cleveland Indians. But yeah. <laughs> traditionally, head-to-head, the White Sox actually abused the Cubs to such a degree that they had to actually discontinue the City Series. There were a number of factors uh, playing into that, uh, number one being that it took uh, actual attention away from the World Series. It was such a big deal in Chicago. Uh, and the money was significant enough that oftentimes uh, there was actually accus- accusations on the Cubs side that the players were laying down to finish in second to play in the City Series and not win the pennant and get to the World Series. So there are a number of factors, but I think the considerable factor that destroyed both the Crosstown Classic, which was the last inner City Series before interleague play started, and even the City Series, which lasted up, I want to say, until about the 40s, was the fact that the White Sox just crushed the Cubs routinely. Now, in interleague play, they're close to five. They're close to 500. The White Sox have won, I want to say, about five games more than the Cubs. In this particular season, I don't even let's see, the Cubs. Who cares? I don't even know how good they were in 2008. I guess they were pretty good because there was talk about maybe a, an, a, an inner city World Series, but. Whether they were good or bad, they were going to play the Sox tough. And the Sox, whether they were bad or good, were going to play the Cubs tough. And as it turns out, in respective parks, there were sweeps. So cancel those things out. I don't even remember any particularly great highlights. And there are great highlights. A.J. Persinski getting punched by Michael Barrett and then deciding to go to Wrigley Field and hit a walk-off home run and just wave to the crowd. Uh, There's been a number of crazy highlights, and the Cubs have gotten the the go to the White Sox, too, as as well, plenty of times. It's a particularly fun interleague series, uh, and for a Major League Baseball interleague play getting a little bit tired, uh, the White Sox and Cubs series will never get tired. And in this 2008 season, they pretty much played to a stalemate. Got the other team I was going to mention that they was you saying getting the goat? Was that a uh, intentional? <laughs> well, that you a... know, <laughs> I have practice at running down the Cubs. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, know, they you're... say they don't care about us, but they seem to always we seem to always be on their minds too. I know that the Cubs fans are above the White Sox, but uh, <laughs> particularly now that the worm has turned and they're going to be looking up at the White Sox for several seasons, uh, it's it's about to get ugly in Chicago. That fell apart quickly. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. But I guess they got their one as long as you get a ring. They did get their one ring. What about um, um, Gavin Floyd took a couple no hitters pretty deep? Hmm. I saw one that uh, he took one into the ninth and then broken up by a Joe Maurer double and uh, Nick Swisher dove for the ball, even though he had. <laughs> Uh, less than a zero percent chance to get it. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's good. Oh, uh, please tell us about that one. Let's see if I can. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to find. I'm gonna try to find the highlight. Hold on. Oh my god, I hope it's. 
Did you like? Nick I hope Twister it's like one of those that? cartoon dives. It's just like it's like five feet beyond him, and he just goes for it anyway to like say he tried. Like when it's like gonna be a walk off if you don't uh, if you don't catch it. Yeah, exactly. Of course, MLB is you know can never find highlights on MLB, so this will be interesting. They make it very difficult to uh, enjoy watching their game. Blackout. Oh, here we go. I found it. Yes. Hang on. Sure. Optimize. All right. Uh, here we go. One out in the ninth, and here's what happened. That is into left center field, slicing away. Can't get there. Ball that slices between. <laughs> I bet Nick Swisher thinks that that standing ovation is for him. <laughs> that that pleases me. Remember when he sold uh, when he was on the Indians and sold Brohio shirts, and it was yep. and they had they had like the sunglasses. Yep, I remember that. <laughs> oh I need to find that shirt. Unfortunately. White Sox, even though they were a first-place team and had been in first place for a good portion of the first half, did only have two All-Stars, Carlos Quinton and uh, World Series hero Joe Creedy. Uh, of course, one a surprise, Carlos Quinton, who was on his way to having 30-plus uh, homers on the season and really was building an MVP case out of nowhere. And Joe Creedy, a guy that the White Sox and fans around baseball uh, looked to and expected perhaps to be an all-star, one of the best third basemen in the game, notably ignored in the all-star game was the starting pitching staff, which, again, was pretty strong for the White Sox and carried the team to some degree. Mark Burley, of course, the ace, uh, had a very poor opening day, but really bounced back, as he always did, to put up a lot of innings, be competitive without any sort of strikeout stuff, any sort of wipeout stuff, and just be there, field the position like few pitchers ever had. John Danks had had a breakout season. Uh, he was perhaps challenging uh, Mark Burley as the ace and a guy that looked like would be paired with Burley for maybe years to come as dual southpaws in a starting rotation that was going to just kill American League opponents for, for many, many years. One guy beyond uh, John Danks and Mark Burley, the two aces, you might say, of the 2008 White Sox staff was Gavin Floyd, right-hander, still a young pitcher, recently acquired from Philadelphia. had had some injury problems, a very hyped prospect who did not pan out in Philadelphia. The White Sox took a gamble on him in a great trade in training Freddie Garcia to Philadelphia, Uh, got him in return among uh, getting uh, Gio Gonzalez also back, uh, a killer trade for the White Sox. And Gavin Floyd paid almost immediate dividends. He had a great 2008 season. And in fact, flashed no-hitter stuff uh, on multiple occasions, uh, including a hilarious game in which the no-hitter was broken up by a very clean hit to left center field, uh, during which... Uh, true, not true center fielder Nick Swisher made an embarrassing flail at the play, uh, and then <laughs> sort of stood up and was very proud of himself for the effort that he made. He got a standing king of, of false, king of false hustle, 
Nick Swisher. And of course, Jose Contreras was part of that starting rotation as well. Um, a really strong rotation that got completely overlooked at the All-Star break. At the All-Star break, the White Sox were in good shape. Uh, seemed like they had put 2007, the abomination of those 2007, in the rearview mirror, and was a team that was going to be reckoned with not just in making the playoffs, but in the playoffs. Uh, strong starting rotation, good enough uh, hitting lineup, uh, strong defensive play, and a bullpen that was spotty but anchored by Bobby Jenks uh, was going to be strong enough. If you could get the game to the late eighth or ninth inning, uh, it was going to get locked down. I think the mood among White Sox fans, again, was a, a cautiously optimistic. Uh, I think with every game uh, that went into the docket, uh, went into the wing column, uh, of course, confidence grows. Even among these guys, it's a bit of a ragtag bunch, a lot of new names, a lot of young names that the White Sox uh, fans weren't used to following or depending on. Carlos Quinton coming out of nowhere to be putting together this MVP season. Uh, Alice Ramirez, a guy who didn't even play in the minor leagues, uh, coming in and making an impact right away, not even in his natural position. Uh, he even played a little center field, played second base. Uh, he ended up being a gold glove shortstop later in his career, uh, but he was just doing what he could to fit in. And Alice Ramirez managed to have a true flair for the dramatic because he uh, put together uh, what is some sort of rookie record, whether White Sox or otherwise, uh, four grand slams in the season, including an incredibly dramatic one late in the season. Uh, he's a guy who's a true unsung hero of the White Sox. He's a guy who became, if anybody, from this strange team that the White Sox fans maybe have a love-hate relationship with based on some of the personnel and some of the very short uh, stints some of the guys on the roster played uh, on the south side. Uh, a guy who became a true fan favorite, even into some really lean years to come later in the decade of the 2010s. Uh, LSA stepped up in a way that really shocked people and um, sort of made his career. Uh, and, and, and as a Cuban player, is a guy who has uh, later spurred a number of other uh, Cuban signings. Uh, the White Sox have become a bit of a pipeline, uh, Cuba to the south side, and uh, right now, uh, a very a much more successful team than even, than even the 2008 team right now is filled with Cuban players, and that is uh, due in part thanks to Alice Ramirez's gamble to come over uh, to the U.S. and play for the White Sox, and to do so so successfully to be, I believe, runner-up uh, in the Rookie of the Year voting in 2008. Yeah, what helped the White Sox in the second half of 2008 is they come out of the All-Star break, uh, still first place team, and a team that has designs on the playoffs, is the fact that a different guy was stepping up um, pretty much every game, and some of the names were ones you wouldn't expect. Yeah, there, most of them were common. Jermaine Dye had some late-game heroics. Paul Canerco, of course, a mainstay for the White Sox, uh, had some late-game heroics. Uh, the, the rookie, I'll say... Ramirez uh, continued <laughs> to pile up grand slams and just to play really solid ball, really out of position, playing at second base. Uh, Ken Griffey, the junior, joined the White Sox, didn't really make a big, big splash for the team, but managed to hit home runs, including decisive home runs, uh, getting closer to the stretch run. Uh, and of course, through all of that, the pitching remained very strong, uh, keeping the White Sox in good contention, staving off uh, what was starting to become a charge from the Minnesota Twins 
late in the season. The White Sox by no means were putting together a great, great year, but they had been in a uh, commanding situation in first place for most of the season. There was no reason for the White Sox not to think that they were going to be able to just pretty much play the string out the last six or so weeks of the season, hold serve, and qualify the, for the playoffs where then, you know, anything can happen. So you you noted that there were, you know, different names kind of each night that were helping him, but I noticed uh, Nick Swisher was not mentioned. That was helping. Let me tell you a Nick Swisher anecdote, uh, and this comes straight from uh, from Ozzy. Um, Nick Swisher had a bobblehead night. Uh, you know, he was the big trade acquisition, and so you know, all right, that's cool, and that's not unheard of. Uh, and and the White Sox were expecting big things from Nick Swisher. And there's for good reason. He had had a very strong beginning of his career in Oakland. And Nick Swisher got maybe an early uh, model of the bobblehead. I don't think it was on the actual bobblehead day, but maybe it was. He brought in the clubhouse. He was all giddy. Keep in mind, he was probably hitting, well, I don't know for sure, but he had a crappy season. So let's say he was hitting 220 at the time. And he was really excited about his bobblehead. And Juan Uribe, who I don't think maybe even to this day, and certainly not then, spoke a ton of English. Uh, Juan Uribe pretty much attacked Nick Swisher over being giddy in the clubhouse about a bobblehead while his season was lousy. Um, I know some of that might smack of old school, but some of it also smacks of wanting to smack Nick Swisher. Uh, basically, you know, Juan Uribe's attitude was, you know, just piss on your bobblehead. This is ridiculous. Why are you, why are you jumping around the clubhouse about a bobblehead? First of all, probably everybody in the clubhouse has already had a bobblehead and you're excited about your bobblehead. This tells me what your priorities are, uh, in the game. Uh, Juan Uribe, just hardcore, just a guy who plays ball, uh, Circular in shape, but uh, certainly an all-star and a <laughs> Hall of Famer in many of our hearts. He's a guy who, uh, of course, went on to uh, be real, uh, truly be a, a hero, even with the Los Angeles Dodgers after his White Sox career. But uh, was a mainstay on the South Side, and and that sort of unofficial captaincy sort of role, keeping guys in check, or just mocking guys when they're being idiots, uh, I think is an understated aspect of uh, what Juan Uribe was all about. I think that's what kept him on the South Side. Uh, for for as long as he stayed. I think that's, you know, you were talking about the traditionalism of, of baseball. I think that's one of the unwritten rules. I think they had bobbleheads back in the, you know, 1800s. And, uh, right. you know, you, you can't can't be excited about your bobblehead night if uh, you're not, you know, batting above the Mendoza line or probably where right. Swisher was hanging. Right, right. <laughs> Do you have one of those Nick Swisher bobbleheads, <laughs> or have you have you destroyed it? <laughs> that would be funny if I did have it. I mean, I did go to a lot of games, and this is before I was covering the team. So, um, if you do, I mail guess... it to Pat so he can use it as a voodoo. Oh ball. yeah, for sure, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And that can be when he signs up on SB Nation, and that is as a burner. That can be his icon. It can just be the Nick Swisher. Ah. Bobblehead. No, okay, it's Pat. Without saying it, I'll know it's him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even though the uh, White Sox had all the reason in the world to be confident heading uh, with, with eyes toward the playoffs, uh, as September approached, uh, there were some cracks 
beginning the show and none worse than on September 1st when not only did the White Sox get shut out against Nemesis Cleveland, as alluded, Carlos Quinton made the very, very unwise decision to once again express his frustration. It wouldn't be the first time. He was good at hitting himself in the helmet with his own bat when he was frustrated. This time, instead of hitting himself, probably a good spot to hit himself in the head because he's a little thick-headed, Hugh. He decided to slap the bat uh, after fouling the ball back uh, with his hand. He finished the at-bat. I believe he grounded out. Uh, but as it turns out, the next day he learned uh, that the persistent throbbing in that wrist wasn't just his wrist telling him that he's an idiot, he's a cool it. It was telling him that I'm broken and you and I will prevent you from playing for the rest of the season. At that moment, Carlos Quinton had already had 36 home runs. He got MVP votes despite that he had not played, he would not play for all of September. This guy had a monster season, and there's no reason to believe he wouldn't have been the MVP of the American League in 2008 had he even just shown up and stood in for of September. But the fact that he uh, rashly took himself out of play, obviously it's something he'd love to have back. It wouldn't be the first of his freak injuries. He often was fond of charging the mound. I can recall him saying that if Zach Grinke threw at him one more time, he was going to go out to the mound and kill him. And I believe that happened. He was in San Diego at the time, but I believe that actually did happen. That was a massive brawl because he had it in for Grinke or Grinke had it in for him for years. At any rate, Carlos Quint was out, which cast a bit of a pall over September. The White Sox still had a lead, had every reason to feel there were, there were no other major, major injuries on the team. So there's no reason to believe that something was going to sneak up and catch them. Even the nemesis Minnesota Twins, the White Sox were able to, to put off what seemed like sometimes disaster, uh, where Octavio Dotel, which, which, who was functioning as not just a free agent acquisition for the White Sox, but an actual gas can on the pitching rubber, because whenever he stepped onto the mound, it seemed like he was giving up a home run and throwing batting practice, uh, did it again uh, uh, in, in front of a national television audience to boot, on September 14th, mid-month, he decides to give up a uh, game-time Grand Slam. Thankfully, unsung hero, Dwayne Wise, who would one day, well, actually, just Dwayne. I think a year later, Dwayne Wise, Dwayne Wise, with the catch preserving Mark Burley's perfect game, uh, did manage to step mm -hmm. up, uh, in loop, do his best Carlos Quinton imitation two weeks later, and hit a game-winning Grand Slam to uh, defeat the Tigers. Uh, the White Sox were reeling, but they were still holding on. They had, again, every reason to believe that they would, even if they had to back their way in, that enough of a pad, enough of a comfortable lead for the balance of the season to even back into the playoffs. Not the way you want to do it, but at least you get there. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's 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 the bad stuff now. <laughs> the most fun, <laughs> bad stuff. That's what the people came for. You would think that the White Sox would be able to somehow avoid the curse of the Minnesota Twins in a season where they had a, at times, commanding lead and certainly a, a definitive lead pretty much from opening day. The White Sox, uh, traditionally under Ozzie Guillen and, and probably even before Ozzie Guillen had had trouble with the Twins, 
Uh, Ozzy had famously coined a couple years earlier, uh, coined the White Sox, or a couple years later, it was one or the other, it's a couple of years, of uh, the twins as piranhas, meaning they would just nip at you, they'd bleed you out, they'd devour your body. I'm not sure what he meant by piranhas, because if it wasn't piranhas, it was piranhas. Uh, but that's what he called them. And uh, at least in 2008, it bore out that way because heading into what should have been a victory lap to the season, the White Sox managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory by going into Minnesota with a two and a half game lead, pretty much in a position to drive a bat or a stake or a sword or a piranha through uh, Minnesota's heart and conquer them, eliminate them from uh, division contention, and instead uh, decided to, well, fail in that mission. Uh, granted, taking two out of three on the road against a tough team, which Minnesota was, uh, isn't a bad thing, but the White Sox needed to do their best to put their foot on the neck of the Twins, uh, and they didn't, and that would turn out to haunt them. Because following that, well, uh, well, it was the end of the season, and things didn't get any better for the White Sox at the end of the season because they played Cleveland. Cleveland also wanted to play, spoiler, also another central division nemesis for the White Sox. The White Sox needed to win a game uh, against Cleveland, and they couldn't do it. They got swept, and they created what is still perhaps <laughs> one of the more unique uh, ends of seasons that we've ever seen in Major League Baseball. And the White Sox were about to run a gauntlet that really no team uh, had ever faced and certainly had ever successfully completed. Do you think Ozzy meant uh, instead of piranha, he meant pinata? He was delivering a, <laughs> you know, a nice celebratory... Yeah, Ozzy was good at giving other teams not bulletin board material, but like um, like rallying cry material. Like he was good at making T-shirts for other teams. Like the Prons, man, they the Minnesota like feasted off of that for like a day. They might still be, uh, well, maybe not this year, but they might still be because uh, yeah, he's you know colorful and uh, didn't pull any punches. That's for sure. But yeah, he could he could have meant that. You never know. In uh, two thousand five, as a fan. This was the year that I first started covering the White Sox. So I actually got to attend some of my first games in the press box very late in that season. Uh, it was while the White Sox were falling fast, even though they had led, they're one of the rare teams to win the World Series and lead the division the entire season. Uh, they were getting very close to falling to second place. Cleveland was right on their heels. I believe the lead shrunk to as little as a game and a half. Uh, and I was there for some of the horror and then some of the triumph. A couple of years, and at that time in 2005, I actually had started keeping a note card. Uh, it was like a desperate hope because I just wanted to see the White Sox. I didn't want to see them win a World Series. I just wanted to see them win a playoff series. I had not witnessed that in my life, and my life stretches back a while. Uh, so I actually kept a note card that had the magic number. Boy, there was just a bunch of a, a bunch of non-marks, a bunch of like skip, 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 because they could not reduce that magic number. By 2008, just three years later, I think White Sox fans had been burned enough by the near collapse in 2005 and then the 91 season that ended up falling short in 2006, not to maybe get that intense about magic numbers or maybe a supposed collapse as it was unfolding before their eyes. So I'm not sure 
I or many other fans kept a note card with a magic number, but if it had, it would have just stuck on the same number day after day. Because the White Sox ended up pretty much, not just with their backs against the wall, really in uh, incredibly poor position ending the season. Uh, they spent 153 days in first place in the division. And after their failure against Cleveland, their failure to clinch against Minnesota and their failure to clinch against Cleveland in crunch time with the team pretty much intact, minus Carlos Quinton, they came in uh, to their uh, uh, final games actually in second place. Uh, and I suppose as White Sox fans, we we're like, all right, well, we were waiting for this all year. Uh, ironically enough, in 2012, just years after this, uh, the same sort of thing happened with Detroit being the nemesis. But in 2008, it was Minnesota who had leapfrogged the White Sox to get into first place. And pretty much it came down to having to play a do-or-die uh, games. Uh, unfortunately, for the White Sox, because they were gassed. This is the end of the season, and they've already pretty much pushed themselves to the max and trying to clinch, and they failed in doing that. There's just one series to go, and they did have one extra game in their pocket because there's a rainout that hadn't been made up against the Tigers that they would make up uh, after the end of the regular season if the game turned out to be necessary. The way the White Sox were playing, it wasn't going to be necessary. So on September 26, beginning the last series of the season. John Danks, who'd been pretty much the pitching hero for the season, uh, made his White Sox career with his 2008 performance, got out to a lead, Panerico, A.J. Persinski, a guy who's been uh, a standby for for the White Sox for several years, everybody, uh, the team he is on's fans love to hate. Of course, he was a hero on the South Side while he was playing the White Sox. Panerico, uh, Homers. Cleveland comes fighting back and uh, takes the lead. Uh, again, another poor performance by uh, the bullpen. Bobby Jenks can't come in in the sixth inning, can't come in in the seventh inning, so it's DJ Carrasco, who gives up a grand slam to Cleveland. Uh, and, the, and despite the fact that the White Sox make an attempt to win that game, they lose. The Royals manage to beat the Twins, so the White Sox are like, they're still alive. The next day, September second to last day of the season with one game still banked, September 27th, uh, the White Sox finally uh, make some kind of attempt to turn things around. Now, Javier Vasquez, a guy who managed to always uh, seize failure, even given the most fortunate circumstances, and this would continue even into the playoffs in 2008, a guy who's managed to always uh, show up small in big games despite having incredible uh, strikeout stuff, incredible wipeout stuff. Uh, he's pitching in this game on September 27th. Uh, and uh, the White Sox and Indians are fighting for their lives. Of course, Cleveland want nothing better than to eliminate the White Sox and then laugh them out of the ballpark and turn September 28th into a completely useless game. But the White Sox uh, attempt to rally, still fail. Twins also lose... Uh, in what could be termed as a very um, not stirring end to the season, both were deciding to choke the division away. Minnesota was trying to hand it to the White Sox. The White Sox were trying to hand it to Minnesota. And at least in this moment, freeze frame it, the White Sox had handed the division to the Twins. One more game left, 
September 28th. The white tax, it is again, do or die. And that is just really by uh, gifts on behalf of the Minnesota Twins, unable to beat the Kansas City Royals. Let's not forget, they're not even playing a good team. They're playing the Kansas City Royals and they can't close this thing out. So they might be gassed as well. On the 28th, Panerko continues his home run streak. He gets on the board. Uh, the White Sox are rallying. Mark Burley is the guy you want on the mound on September 20th in this must game, even though he's not lining up good for any particular playoffs. Mark Burley is the guy you want there on the mound. Once again, as Mark Burley often does, he's pitching through a lot of traffic, but he's managing to squirrel his way out of it each time, uh, throwing double playground balls, uh, fielding his position like a champ. Uh, Jermaine Dye uh, comes up big. Matt Thornton. Uh, coming out of nowhere to become a legitimate uh, a future all-star uh, setup man comes through Bobby Jenks like the killer he is like the big big bad uh, beer belly boy he is gets the save the White Sox win on the last day of the season and live to see one more day and that one more day well I don't know uh, turned out to actually exist because somehow the twins the twins <laughs> they they can't close this thing out um the white Sox uh uh, uh live to see one more day they have 87 wins uh the twins have 88 uh the white Sox are going to get to force that makeup game that rained uh rained out game against detroit and this begins an odyssey where the white Sox are playing three different teams on three consecutive days and technically uh, to issue a spoiler alert, end up playing four different teams on four consecutive games. Uh, but that gets us a little ahead of ourselves because we have one more game to discuss, and it's a very, very controversial, very, uh, it's a very interesting game because the starter facing the White Sox in game 162 is former White Sox, former White Sox World Series winner, Freddie Garcia. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories about this Freddie Garcia start. I'm ready for the tinfoil hat. Yeah, big time. <laughs> All right, well, it's game 162. This game was not going to be played if the White Sox had either won the division comfortably, which they were in position to do probably just as early as five or ten days uh, earlier in September. But it was forced by the fact that the Minnesota Twins had leapfrogged them. White's, uh, the Minnesota Twins were sitting pretty with 88 wins. Not exactly a stirring division winning uh, total, but it had them in first place in the AL Central. White Sox had 87 wins, and if they could beat Detroit on what would be the final game of the regular season, they would force a tiebreaker with Minnesota. Uh, do or die, back uh, against the wall. Freddie Garcia, former White Sox, a World Series hero, one of those four pitchers who threw a complete game. Uh, during that uh, and stirring only one loss World Series run for the White Sox just three years earlier was now pitching for Detroit. Uh, at this point, no longer a power pitcher, sort of a junk ball pitcher, still sweating like a madman. Uh, he woke up, got out of bed sweating, got to the ballpark uh, for his warm-up <laughs> pitches, pouring in sweat. By the time he got on the mound for his very first pitch, he probably couldn't even see he was sweating so much. So Sweaty Freddie was on the mound, and he began his start perhaps wanting to show the White Sox why they shouldn't have traded him to Philadelphia, him eventually making his way to Detroit, in the first place because he was killing the White Sox. And how ironic would it have been if Sweaty Freddie Garcia was the one 
to kill the White Sox chance. This wasn't going to get them into the playoffs. This was going to get them to have a chance for a tiebreaker to get into the playoffs. But he was playing a little bit of a revenge game. Now, at some point in this tight game, Garcia had control of this game, probably not a ton of stamina, and he wasn't the most efficient pitcher at this point. And again, had no no speed or arm left, and it's hard for him probably to see the plate through all the sweat. But uh, he came up with, mid-game, an injury. Now, we don't know about this injury. Jim Leland trotted out to talk to him. Uh, he was He was rolling. He was going to get this win. He had stymied the White Sox. He was going to end the Chicago White Sox uh, season negatively. This was going to become one of the um, collapses that would go down in White Sox annals. Maybe not quite as horrific as 1967, but it would definitely be a top five collapse for the White Sox. Uh, he was delivering that for the Tigers, who at this point had no real vested interest in this game. They weren't playing for the playoffs. They were just playing to mess with the White Sox. Why shouldn't you, right? Well, he left the game. He was injured. And I say injured with air quotes because I'm not sure Freddie Garcia was injured. I don't know what was in it for him to not complete that game or even complete his inning. He left mid-game, creating a situation with Detroit where they had to rush a guy out to the mound. And it completely changed the momentum of the game. This game would end, though it was it was tight throughout. The momentum turned, and Alice Ramirez actually broke a rookie record, which he had already had a share of, with his fourth Grand Slam. I believe this one is the Homer Hands Grand Slam, where immediately he drops the bat and throws his hands up. That could have been the third Grand Slam. It's tough. When you have four Grand Slams in the season, it's hard to keep them all straight. I don't have a T-shirt to commemorate it. But I believe this is Homer Hands Grand Slam, and basically that Grand Slam sent the White Sox right. not to the playoffs, but to a tiebreaker game against Minnesota, which, by luck, because of whatever coin flip had been done a couple weeks earlier, the White Sox had won. At least they had won the, the, the coin flip that would mean if there was a tie, Minnesota would have to come to Chicago to play the tiebreaker game. And I guess it's technically not a playoff game, even though we all consider it a playoff game. That set up uh, incredibly historic, a game that I think is probably beyond any I've ever been to. And I've actually seen World Series wins, one of those rare people, World Series wins at home watching my Chicago White Sox, probably the most stirring game I've ever witnessed. Game number 163, hosting the Minnesota Twins, the blackout game. Uh, on a podcast, you can't see it, but I still have my blackout towel. This is how important <laughs> this game was to me. Uh, uh, granted, we use it in the kitchen, but we still have our blackout <laughs> towels. So, so White Sox, in a very strange, like, pre-viral, pre-social media era, had the wherewithal. I don't know who was running them at the time because this is really not like the White Sox to be this fast on their feet. But after the weird, like, uh, follow the leader uh, thunder sticks, I think that was an Angels thing that got their way to Chicago because thunder sticks were all the rage in the, the mid-aughts. Uh, the White Sox dumped the thunder sticks and said, you know what we're going to do for this game to freak out the Twins because the Twins always get in our heads. They always get our mojo. We are going to call a blackout game. And, of course, what among the fan base had any clue what the heck a blackout game was? Well, the blackout game was wear black to the game. It was pretty, pretty straightforward, right? Wear black to the game and wave our towels. 
Now, here's the funny thing about this towel. Again, I'm sorry, on the podcast, you can't see this, but it's just a generic towel. It's as if the White Sox just like knocked off a freight car filled with black kitchen towels and just said, you know what, we're taking these. Zoink, we're taking these. There's no branding on this towel. It's just a black <laughs> towel. That is uh, maybe the last non-branded um sort of a promotion that you'll ever see because lord knows if there's a blackout today it will be blackout sponsored by guaranteed, guaranteed rate, rate. Blah, 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 blah. and it wouldn't be black anymore by the time all the lettering on the towels there this was just a black towel that you could take home and use in your kitchen for the next 13 years like i have because there's something wrong with me i had my blackout towel my wife was there with me i asked my father to go because of course he introduced me to white Sox fandom and my father is a very brassy fellow, but he's also strangely superstitious and says, no, I won't be able to handle it. I will bring them bad luck. I can't go. No, I don't want this on my head. I'll go to my grave feeling bad about losing the 2008 chance at the playoffs. So uh, pretty lame, Pops. But yes, I uh, took my wife, who, uh, contrary to my father, was a good <laughs> luck charm for the White Sox. She had all sorts of White Sox dances, the great cheers, uh, drew up signs. Uh, so we were there in section 147, I want to say, right down the right field line, which was our traditional seats. I'd managed to secure that from the White Sox because I, by this time, being a, a veteran of game program writing, I was a VIP. So I got myself a couple pair, uh, a couple tickets, and we were there, and it was an awe-inspiring experience. Uh, I was there for the World Series, and unfortunately, when it's that late in October and there's actually like snow, mist, slurry, whatever is, is falling from the sky uh, because it's late October and you're still playing baseball, it's sort of hard for that to be magical. And believe me, the White Sox made those games in 2005 pretty magical in the World Series. But it, it still didn't uh, hold a candle to this blackout game because the fans were into it. I would estimate 90% percent plus of fans were wearing black actually listened to uh the um the orders issued by the white socks and said yes we must wear black they told us to and we all showed up wearing black like the lemmings we were packed the stadium and waved our towels like a bunch of um, soccer loving clowns and i guess it worked because this was uh, obviously the game ended in success for the white socks but it was a classic game. It was a well-fought game. These were two teams that managed, uh, despite being completely gassed. You don't really have the right to be gassed when you only win 87 and 88 games. When you win 88 games, you don't have the right to claim that you're gassed. But these teams, let's face it, were gassed. This was a big stretch run. The Twins obviously came out of nowhere or close enough to nowhere to take the division lead. And now they're looking over their shoulders at this White Sox team that just won't go away. And then they look over in the dugout and they see Nick Swisher hitting 220 and just grinning like an idiot. And that's freaking them out because it's like, <laughs> what has this guy got on us? He's creepy. Uh, and it was a, was really a classic game. John Danks got the start and threw an incredible shutout performance. It was a low scoring. It was a no scoring game. There was very little uh, offense. Uh, it was well played. It wasn't sloppy uh, in the least. And uh, the two uh, plays that really stand out, um, the positive uh, offense for the White Sox was Jim Tomei hitting an absolute moonshot where there is, I believe now, a plaque at Sox Park where the ball landed because it was well into the shrubbery in center field 
Uh, it seemed off the bat like a long fly ball, but sometimes home runs do, and that was a real long fly ball. It was one of those fly balls that land considerably, at come considerable distance over the fence, and that gave the White Sox a one nothing lead, and as it turns out, that's all they did need. And incredibly, Ken Griffey had hit a few home runs, and it was just, let's face it, it was cool to see Ken Griffey, as freaky as it was for 20 and other fan bases, it was pretty cool to see, as a White Sox fan, Ken Griffey in a White Sox uniform. Ken Griffey's playing center field because the reason he waived his 10-5 rights was to come to play for the White Sox to get into the playoffs, and this was an opportunity. He wasn't doing a lot offensively, particularly in this game. He wasn't doing it offensively in the stretch run for the White Sox. But defensively, uh, he falls out of bed as an average defensive center fielder at whatever age. Uh, there was a play where Michael Kadair was on third base. It was a tag up, uh, it was a tag situation. Griffey caught the fly ball. It wasn't deep center field. It wasn't an incredible throw, but it was spot on. Kadair tried to bowl over back when you still could bowl over a catcher. Tried to bowl over A.J. Persinski. A.J. Persinski, I'm sure, loved sticking it to his former team uh, who traded him away, held on to the ball, actually got up and showed the ball to Kadair in, in classic A.J. Persinski style. Uh, and that was really the pivotal moment of the game for the White Sox, denying that one run. It ended up being a one nothing win in this tiebreaker, and it still is referred to. It's gone down in the White Sox annals uh, as the blackout game. I'm sort of shocked. I think they made efforts to do it again, but they never really made the concerted effort, and they certainly never robbed a um, a an unattended freight car or semi-trailer uh, like they did for this blackout game again in the future. Uh, because if they did hand out any sort of blackout tells, they probably were branded by that time. So I still have a pure one, and I still use it just to treasure that memory. They did actually, the White Sox, win this game, an unbelievably classic game. Brian Anderson, who was an incredibly disappointing presence for the White Sox, managed to seal the game on one of those diving catches that Nick Switcher would attempt and miss, but Brian Anderson being a little taller and actually being a, an adequate baseball player and a good defender in center field, made that diving catch to end the game, and the White Sox somehow were in the playoffs. And they had done this by winning three straight games against three different teams, which had not happened in Major League history. How loud was the stadium that night? The It was, it was chilling because you had the combination of the visual, which was freaky. Yeah. And it was like, it was almost like a... a, a um, a Japanese uh, league experience where, you know, they're way, where, where there's so much fan interaction. You're not used to seeing that um, in the same way. I mean, I guess a cre in a creepy, like disgusting way with the tomahawk chop bullshit with um, the Braves. But I mean, you don't really see that too much uh, with, with baseball and the idea that everybody was decked out this way. I mean, it did seem like the lights weren't on. It was pretty weird. And the crowd, yes, was as loud as I remember it for the world series. And again, because all of our noise in late October 2005 was just frozen in the air because it was probably 40 degrees when warm breezes flew through. The uh, the fact that it was a, a nicer night, uh, it, it was a, it was actually, I would imagine it was actually maybe, I don't know how much this plays for players, but I think it probably was a little intimidating for the, the Twins. Not, not that that played a factor, but... Uh, as hard as it is to get home field advantage in baseball, I think this was the one time the White Sox really seized home field advantage without weather getting in the way, without the White Sox home performance getting out of the way. Uh, really from first pitch, it was just this wall 
this wall of black. It was like a, it was like a, it was like a goth dream because it's just like black, <laughs> black. You could get no more black, and the, yeah. uh, um, you know, it, the White Sox managed to ride that incredibly into the playoffs, um, seizing hope where just a couple days earlier there was none. Yeah, I have to imagine when Tommy hit that bomb, it the place probably just blew off. Yeah, and you had the sense that um, even though I mean, come on, any any baseball has to be like, okay, yeah, that's one run, great, you know. Yeah. Okay, what else? But in that game, these teams were, you know, I mean, and it, I'm guessing it probably was a little chilly, so it's not exactly, um, you know, it's it's not going to be too friendly to offense. So mm-hmm. even still, you're like. You know, all right, that's the one run, but it did really feel like, okay, that's almost like a nail in the coffin. It's like, we got yeah. one. Now all we have to do is shut them down for a couple of innings. And uh, yeah, there was a ton of optimism. And, and you know, it's Tommy, it's a it's a moonshot. It's against, uh, you know, a, a nemesis team. Uh, I'm sure the White Sox probably even going in. I can't imagine they were big favorites, if they were even favorites, given how they had sort of sloughed off the whole last week of the season. So the idea that he stepped up and did that uh, for the White Sox, the fan base, and in a game where obviously everybody was really struggling for any offense whatsoever, uh, yeah, it really felt sort of like the White. It almost felt like a walk off, even though it was uh, still well in game. Yeah. And then the playoffs. The. <laughs> yeah, the uh, <laughs> you know the White Sox were they they. That was their playoffs. The the blackout game and winning that was sort of like their World Series. They had fried their rotation because uh, of no days off, because every game was a must win. So they weren't going to be able to uh, provide rest for anyone. Uh, and so going in there at a disadvantage, they're coming up against a tough uh, Tampa uh, Bay Rays team. Uh, so it certainly wasn't like they were going to be favored going in. Uh, the team was, um, disarray is not the right word, but you know, they were just, they they were really at that point operating on fumes. Not to say Tampa wouldn't have beaten, beaten them at full strength had the White Sox done what they should have done and wrapped it up, say, mid-September. But uh, the fact that the Rays had home field advantage and they had to play in the um, Bizarro uh, hovering sombrero dome in St. Pete, um, and even then, still fought. I mean, those weren't runaway games. Uh, still fought, but again, Javier Vasquez uh, managed to um, eh, choke's not the right word, but uh, he didn't step up. Orlando Cabrera in the playoffs got into some bizarre um, beef with uh, who the heck was that guy's name? Uh, Balfour, uh, uh, Grant Balfour, I think, where they were like doing like a mano a mano thing because I think. Somebody he threw at him, or I, there was some very strange beef for Orlando Cabrera. I'm not sure what his 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 issue was. He had one year right. foul side, and he was, you know, he was disposed of after that. I'm not sure that he was the best presence in the clubhouse. Not Nick Swisher level because nobody's really Nick Swisher level, but he created this strange beef that got. I seemed to rally Tampa. And Tampa was already better, so that's not really helping you rallying the team that's already favored. Uh, the White Sox did manage to win one game again. My my father chose to wimp out and not see the first playoff game three at the park because he thought it was going to bring them bad luck. Now, granted, that's that's 
that's a patsy move because they're already down two olds. It's like, what do you got to lose? But he didn't go, and uh, they did win game three, uh, even though still it's like, well, there was no illusion that the White Sox were going to rally like they had to finish the season and put three to three straight together to win the the series and get into that ALCS. Uh, but still, you show up in game four, and then my dad says, yeah, sure, I'll come. And true enough, yeah, he was bad luck. They lost game four. Uh, they lost the series, and that is the last playoff game in a normal season. We are going to put an asterisk on 2020 because I think all you had to do was spit, and you got into the playoffs last year. 2008 is the last time the White Sox were in the playoffs, and it has been since 2008, by and large, certainly since 2013, the worst stretch of White Sox baseball I, as a fan, have ever witnessed. This has been a truly rough rough rebuild and it's sort of sad that 2008 was in some crazy way a high point because it's really the last true playoff that the that fans can point to that's 13 years ago they made it last year but again it doesn't not count but you, you can't exactly pat yourself too hard on the back when half the teams make the playoffs so uh this year's what white sex fans are pointing to and it's that's a lot you go a whole decade without being in the playoffs you're doing something really wrong and the white Sox have been doing stuff really wrong for for quite some time and unfortunately 2008 and what was a really stirring end to the season was was the high point we didn't know it then <laughs> we probably thought 2009 was going to be a great year and it was a really bad year uh but uh 2008 was just going to be just another year and we'll go get them next year and not sort of blowing in september but it wasn't going to happen for many many years to come if you even want to count 2020 and i'm not sure that you should so we're we're 13 years and counting did you guys kind of hold on to 2008, you know, with that kind of uniqueness of the season, the uniqueness of game 163 and kind of like hold on to that for a time until it kind of ran out of its like luster, you know? Yeah. You had to hold on to it. Cause it's all, cause it's all you had. I mean, yeah. if it had just been some sort of, I don't know, if somehow more pedestrian, no goofy uh, bed, bath and beyond towels uh, to wave or whatever, it still would have been special because yeah, it was like the last, like, playoff win sort of in in some weird way so yeah you had to point to that and you know then you throw on top of that the utter uniqueness of the game the national audience the the uniqueness of it being a a tiebreaker game against it i mean i guess it would always be against a division rival but against a hated rival um such a well-played game that yeah i think both because we had to as fans but because you know it, it also had its own merit that yeah really until I don't think it's, I actually don't think it probably has been supplanted yet. The White Sox had a one, a one playoff victory last year in the sort of, you know, strange um, truncated season, but, you know, uh, then lost the next two, um, nothing to write home about. Um, so I don't think that's supplanted the um, the blackout game. So I think that's still until, until you're winning probably in some sort of very dramatic fashion or maybe a, a next playoff series, say maybe this fall, I don't think you're really going to displace the blackout game yet. I mean, it tends to probably still get overlooked in context of, of the World Series season, of course. But if you're going to just try to like rewind back to the the, the last great you know, memory, it's the blackout game. That's like a lot of fans were not born. They certainly weren't even fans by then. So that's yeah, that's a sad statement. Yeah. That's its own sad little statement for the White Sox. It, All right, Brett, we'll get you out of here on this. Um... Without looking, what are Bobby Jenks's measurements? Oh my god! <laughs> uh, um, 
his measurements are uh, uh, 50, 52, and, uh, and um, 42. Wow. Hoss. <laughs> <laughs> I think they got that on the rack. <laughs> yeah. you know talking about? I mean, I don't know. I don't remember all the local radio commercials at the time, but if he did not do big and tall, he really left some money on the table. That's for sure. Because he is big <laughs> and tall. That's no right. Doubt about it. There you have it. That is the story. And these are the basis stories. Was it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow us on Twitter at the basis stories. Also, see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the Stories Podcasts at the Stories Pods on Twitter. As our guests rewrite the past across various sports. Alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion. Please drink responsibly. Yeah, I didn't know uh, Aloy was dominican but uh i was going to pay my respects for him passing away earlier this, <laughs> yeah, this year. Nice. thank you that's it's it is nice yes and somehow the memorial was down. uh something special he has descended <laughs> down from heaven and landed in winston-salem north carolina where i believe he is batting third and playing dh uh, tonight in there his first go. rehab game back so um he's feeling 200 percent yes yes he is bursting and, uh, out of the grave that jersey to... hanging in the clubhouse signed by the entire team was just oh my god that was very, oh man very weird very weird well there are many <laughs> uh many fishing many fishing nets for him to get caught in still because i believe he's gonna have to play left field grandel's hurt so he's gonna probably yep, be yep. So I think they're gonna have to put eloy back out in left field and lord knows uh what his next injury is gonna be but i think it's i think it's certain there will be one and he was a folk hero. Come on, Ozzy made him a folk hero. He's he's still very very uh, very beloved. Speaking of uh, folk heroes, uh, with the impending return, are there any uh, festivities planned, like uh, egg hunts or um, ceremonies or laying of palms or anything like that for the return of uh, Eloy from the dead? <laughs> Maybe there'll be a mass uh, mass hi mom. Everyone will just say hi hi mom to their moms. Um, yeah, he he will be risen. He he will be risen. And I, I think that the only thing maybe tempering that is that there's still so many deceased. There's Luis Roberts still deceased. Nick Madrigal's deceased. So there are enough who have passed on this season that maybe you can't really celebrate it too much. I don't think they're going to go full New Orleans. Mm -hmm. But um, and then plus he's going to probably still have a glove. The fact that he's still going to be playing left field. It's like you don't want to print the T-shirts up because within like a few games, he could be dead again. So I think you want to sort of temper that because he's at least going to be in a fishing net, um, if not just outright injured. Um, and until Luis Robert comes back where Luis can cover everything from right center all the way to the left field line, until Luis is back, he might have to field some baseballs. And so I'm... I'm not a doctor, not like his chances of surviving this season, even after he comes back. He will be back in heaven soon. You will, you will, you will, you will see him um, in the clouds again.
It's because of the kids. They called me Mr. Glass. <laughs> Maybe that um that Dotel game, the the September fourteenth um okay. Sunday night baseball game, Dotel gives up a game tying grand slam to the Tigers. Uh Marcus Thames, Tim's Thames, Tom Stiams, Thames. <laughs> That one's for Kennedy. Yeah. What do you um, like call the stadium? Because I know the names change like a million times. Like, what is the? Such I know a it's, is it now Sox it was Park even, right now? Yeah, if it but, was even like, like a fun name, you could you could play with that. But I mean, even and, you know, you tolerated U.S. Cellular Fields. Like, oh, that's stupid, but okay. But guaranteed right field with a freaking down pointing arrow, like going to hell. <laughs> Is, that's a bridge too far so no it's just it's back to some people still say comiskey that really doesn't make sense but yeah it's no, definitely no. Sox park okay and whenever i see like in media sometimes like even the chicago tribune they'll like tweet out something they'll be like at Sox park i'm like hey way to brass up their tribune and like not play the corporate game you know fine i mean i'm sure they're probably just trying to stick it formerly former cub owners but you know um you know probably just trying to stick it to the Sox. but yeah Sox park I mean, what else can it be you're really going to guarantee rate for you or or the G rate or the great or I don't even know what the other the, the Gare. Gary the Gare. So uh yeah, until they decide to until they decide to change it again or just tear the thing down and try and get an even more sweetheart deal from the state of Illinois. Yes, it's just going to be Sox Park. The yeah. only way to do it. Well I've I've never you been should. to a I've never been to a game out there, but would love to. I, I've been to a couple different uh parks where tailgating is uh prevalent in uh philly pittsburgh there's like mm -hmm. a couple other ones i feel like i've been to but i would love to uh love to get out there for uh for a game for sure to see there uh, they have, they have the they have the uh superior food options in chicago oh, okay. for sure. i was gonna mention the food too but sure. i want to see it's nope. by far by far way better food yeah. than regular and no pre and no pre-troughs like Wrigley. So, I mean, you know, yeah. and some people maybe are pro-trough. I don't know. But, yeah. uh, and they have frozen, frozen drinks in the center field. It's great. They're ridiculous. And, you know, ever since it, it was born as a UFO, find that well, you know, they, they, cut the, uh, they cut the roof off. And, you know, it is actually a very attractive park now. I mean, they did not benefit from being the last non-retro, new retro park. But they tried to scramble to correct that. And I think they did a good job. The UFO was a bad look. Now that now it looks like a ballpark and it's it's nice. You, you'll you'll enjoy it when you come and that's not just for the food. Although you could just enjoy it just for the food. Like when you show up and the White Sox beat the Red Sox like eighteen to two, you can just have and still have a nice time because the food's <laughs> so good. It is. It and is. You should uh, back to park names. They should uh, go blackout rally towel and just strip the name off the building and just. just I mean, they even here's the thing. They park even asked. They even asked the company, could you just do something else and not have a downward arrow? And they're like, no. <laughs> I mean, how much? You, I mean, and they're not getting paid that much. It's, it's say, extraordinary what was to me. Like, we don't, we don't want our rates Chicago. to go up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, something is being lost in the translation of people driving into a park where there's a down arrow, red down arrow pointing, but... Again, not my decision, but yeah, that annoys the hell out of me. So it's absolutely Sox Park because it's embarrassing to do anything else. I don't know why they don't get, you know, like, a, get a Sox bomb, like Bombas. 
Bombas Park. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just ordered some. I mean, today. Yeah. Oh, whatever is next, I hope is better. It can't be worse. So, Brett, is uh, is Frank Thomas your favorite sock of all time? Sock. No, you know, uh, um, um, I don't know. The eugenics thing sort of uh, takes a little bit of a blush. <laughs> a little bit but no i mean come on i mean how can you not love frank thomas but he's he's a guy who's so good it's like he's sort of almost taken for granted like he's everybody's sort he's on the list so you you know you want to be like no i like tim rain so um (laughs) yeah of course he's on the list but no he would not be my favorite chet lemon was i go far back far enough that chet lemon was my first favorite white Sox player so that's that's how far back i go but yeah frank come on just Stop, put your drink down, watch the at bat, and that pretty much existed for you know 15 years. So, don't come around often that? like that. Javier, uh, Javier Baez, I think, gets under my skin. I don't hate him, he oh. just gets under my skin because MLB like tweets everything he sneezes and they tweet it out, so that's sort of annoying. Uh, have you seen his he tagged a runner and it's like everyone just orgasms, like, good god, <laughs> yeah, no look tag. Well, maybe yeah. he shouldn't have looked when he tags. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> fundamental baseball, whatever. <laughs> that is, is Hunter Pence on your list? Hunter Pence, I, yeah. I can't stand Hunter Pence. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I keep going, Brett. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind the knickers. I'm okay. I'm okay with Hunter Pence. I don't mind the knickers. <laughs> I'm more crushed by like guys who disappoint me, like guys like Barry Bonds, who, who I really loved, like growing up, who like just broke my heart by turning into what they turned into. Although I'm, I just was probably in denial that he was always that guy, you know, Roberto Alomar, those types of guys. Those guys hurt me a lot more than guys who are just dicks out of the box, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, Bauer obviously. Trevor Bauer is a guy I was never really fond of, and he's just getting well, <laughs> a whole deeper, deeper. But very hairy situation. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. I irrationally hate Billy Hamilton, like, a lot. It's Billy funny. Hamilton? Yeah, he's playing. Hmm. Wow. That's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah the just, White, the White Sox fan base has fallen head over heels in love with Billy Hamilton. I know. I'm running for Billy Hamilton, too. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't particularly understand. I mean, he just seems like a, seems like a good-natured dude, and he's actually, you know, playing played out of his mind like the rest of the guys who are still alive on that team. But, yeah. I never had a really strong... Strong feeling about Billy Hamilton. It was irrational for me, I would say. I mean, he like, no. He, uh, (laughs) all my other irrational hate is like, I have the like 90s yet. Like, I hate Paul O'Neill, like, might be my like least favorite baseball player of all time. Mm. Scott Brocious, uh, like those like mid mid to late 90s. I'm a Red Sox, Red Sox fan. Like, those, uh, mid to late 90s, like, Yankees fans so i don't i I actually like i don't hate Derek jeter but i hate fans number two i hate fans like love of Derek. like he's a bet he's not good defensively like i would go to my grave like he never had so that ended and nomar's like one of my probably maybe my favorite baseball player of all time he dove in the stands and he he didn't need to he didn't have to dive into caught the ball 20 feet before then and just (laughs) took a horrible route to the and just flew flew into the stands and he i mean he didn't need to jump all of those like plays and he's a below average defensive (laughs) shortstop by by every metric 
Kind of sounds like Javi Baez. But I like mm. uh, I like <laughs> like like and respect Jeter, but just Yankee fans like godlike love of him is crazy to me. I get it. 